talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to another Buckeye Talk. It's a Buckeye Retalkable. And Nathan, this is definitely the weirdest one. It's not even in dispute. And it's not even, I don't even know what this is going to be like. It's from 1930. It is the Ohio State Michigan game from 1930. And Nathan, we are not doing this because it is a particularly extraordinary moment in the Ohio State Michigan rivalry. It is not a particularly extraordinary game. But the University of Michigan Bentley Historical Library, which is a really good resource, Michigan actually does a really good job with the Ohio state Michigan series and the rivalry stuff. I've been on the Bentley historical library site many times over the years, Ohio state has a great archives as well. They're putting out a lot of really good stuff in the Ohio state archives for the hundred year anniversary of Ohio stadium. So I would, if you like this stuff at all, especially as you get, maybe if you get a little time off in the spring or summer and you can dig in, you can find some stuff online. I know, you know, back in the old days, you had to go to stuff. This is, this is just on the, Michigan, the Bentley Historical Library website, last year they announced that they put out a bunch of old Michigan games, and Ohio State games were among them, Nathan. This is the oldest Ohio State-Michigan game, as far as I know, that they made available. It's from 1930. To be honest, I haven't quadruple-checked the Ohio State archives in terms of what video they may have of old games. I'll put that on my list of things to do this summer. But that's why we're doing it, Nathan. We're doing Ohio State-Michigan 1930 because it's the oldest Ohio State-Michigan game we know of at the moment that has video. It's a 20-minute video clip that we got to watch. Video, no audio. No audio. So if you don't do a little bit of research going in, you might not know which team is which? Correct. Well, it says at the bottom, so Michigan does not have numbers on its I think jersey. they do. I think they're super, they- super, super faint. Are they dark? Because the one problem is they're both wearing dark uniforms. Right. There's nobody's wearing a white jersey top. So at the beginning of the game, it's like, who is who? And on the library historical site, to its credit, it has a little note. OSU has white numerals on jerseys. So that really helped. That's under the clip. It's like, okay, well, at least now we know which team is which. And then you can see the Ohio State numbers. So you can see who who was who for Ohio State. I could not tell who was who for Michigan. Maybe uh, if there are dark numbers on dark jerseys, so be it. I couldn't see them. I think they were. I think maybe my eyes are playing tricks on me. I thought there were really faint numbers, okay. but um, no. It's um, we've talked before about the retalkables being sort of a, having kind of a time machine effect, and how weird it feels to watch recent past. And when I say recent past, I mean like, you know, even 80s, 90s, where it's like, oh, that's like so close to like the sport that we know. It's just a little bit off. Like, is there something? It's just funky enough. This is like a different sport. This is not that. So it's a hard watch, right? Like, it's hard to figure out what is going on. And I think it is made more difficult by the fact that nobody scores for a while. (laughs) Well, the. Everything about, I mean, you can't really tell what part of the field they're on unless, I mean, if you, if you just jump in in the middle, you have no way of knowing what part of the field they're on. Right. You can kind of tell with some of the back and forth of where they were on the field before and what happened, but the yard markers aren't, the yard, the yardage isn't marked on the field. There are like little markers on the edge of the field 
mm-hmm. like little pile, you know, little triangle things, right. but there's no numbers on the field. All right. And those certainly, those don't come into this every shot of every play. The, the, right. the screen oh, is sure. also, the, the, the shots are also very tight. So like, for instance, uh, an extra point, maybe it went in, maybe it didn't. Like, yeah, your guess is as good as ours. Yeah, it is. It is quite a thing. And I will say that this comes in the midst of a very difficult stretch for Ohio State in the Ohio State-Michigan series, because we will tell you that in this game, uh, the fighting Buckeyes do not score. This is from 1930. It is a 13-0 win for Michigan. This is in a stretch between 1922 and 1933 when Michigan was 9-3 against Ohio State. Ohio State in those 12 games scored a combined 68 points. And Nathan, nine of the losses, the nine losses for Ohio State, seven of them were shutouts. So seven times in 12 years, Ohio State did not score against Michigan and this is one of those games, and they do not look particularly close to scoring from what no. we can tell. No, no. And in fact, this game basically hinged on the first team that could complete a pass. Yes. <laughs> not that they were throwing it very much. So I have a little tease about a thing that I did not know. And listen, here's the thing. We did not become experts on 1930s football overnight for this podcast because not what this not what this is about this is about the two chuckleheads that we are watching this thing and being like yeah that's crazy and then you guys can go watch it too you can take 19 minutes and 26 seconds out of your life when we put this story up at cleveland.com it'll say ohio state versus michigan 1930 buckeye retalkables we'll have the link to where you can watch it at the bentley historical library in there or you can just find your way to the Bentley Historical Library website. I don't have the perfect link to read to you, but they have a lot of collections of different things. And among them are these Michigan football games. So you guys can go find this. But I have a little thing that I did not know that is a little bit of a twist on this game or a twist on this era of Ohio State football that we will get into shortly and there's actually there's there's two others and the one there's another thing that's a little more obvious. But let's start with how we do this on the retalkables. A lot of the categories are going to be NA not available, couldn't read numbers, didn't understand what was happening, grainy footage. Also, the big loser here, the cameraman. When they did throw the ball, the camera person was like, "Well, I have no idea where it's going, and I cannot right. follow." Back then, I guess humans. The technology was so new, they did not know how to follow the flight of a football in the air to figure out where it was going. Who knows how big this camera was, too? Like, it might not have been. This isn't a little camcorder they're using. It's certainly not an iPhone. It may have been the size of a filing cabinet that they were having to, like, swivel in front of. For all we know, like, I don't know. I didn't research that. So it may just be that you couldn't physically move the camera that fast. Right. I'm ripping the camera operator like, hey, how come you didn't move your 500 pound camera faster right. back in the dark ages? <laughs> and there is a point where the guy in front of the camera stands up and he's wearing one of those hats that everybody in the 1930s wore. It's like, well, we missed that play. The guy's yep. head was <laughs> in the way. So, again, this was not on uh, Fox. This is not Gus Johnson doing this game. So we can't I don't even know. I assume it's just Michigan recorded it 
for posterity some for some reason. I don't I don't know where they got these things. It may, it may have been the film that the team used. This might have been before they figured out like how to do it to get all 22. This might have been what they watched back then. Yeah, did not learn much. <laughs> so let's start with, though, who owned the game? Because I do think there is somebody who owned the game. And I'll let you go first. You have a nominee. This is where we talk about sort of like the player, the coach, the person who was the best at this game. I have a nominee. Do you? I, I didn't really have a single individual that, that stood out to me okay. that much from this. So, so, so let's talk about then. And this is interesting. I think it's moderately interesting. The Michigan quarterback in this game is named Harry Newman. And he is significantly better than the Ohio yes. state quarterbacks in this game. Yes. Ohio state has a quarterback early on who really cannot throw. And then at the end, when they're down, they put in this guy from Cleveland, apparently, because I have, the, I have the game story, by the way, from the dispatch from 1930 that we'll read parts of. It is one of those things, Nathan, it is 1930s sports writing at its best. And it is 4,000 words long. And the first 2,500 words are pontificating. And then it's like in the first quarter, this happened. And the first 2,500 words is talking about, Hannibal, the general at the gates of Rome and how he compared to the Ohio State defense or whatever. It is ridiculous. I'm not sure it's going to make for a good podcast, but I do have it. So that's where I, because some of it you couldn't find. I also, in the Ohio State Archives, credit the Ohio State Archives, I have the roster. I have the, the 1930 Ohio State roster, so I could match up some numbers and some players. But I did not know this about him. His name's Harry Newman, clearly the best quarterback in the game. They didn't have the Heisman back then. The first Heisman Trophy was awarded in 1935. So there is no Heisman Trophy in 1930. However, in 1932, two years after this game, Harry Newman, the Michigan quarterback, is the recipient of the Douglas Fairbanks Trophy as the outstanding college player of the year, which is the precursor to the Heisman. Mm -hmm. So we are basically watching a future Heisman winner in this game. And what distinguishes him as a Heisman winner is he is moderately competent at throwing a ball (laughs) as opposed to the Ohio state guy, which is just like they Ohio state has a route tree at one point where they have three guys. The Ohio state quarterback rolls out to the right and they have a three levels concept. They have a short guy, a middle guy and a deep guy. And he just kind of chucks it in between the middle guy and the deep guy. And you have no idea who it was intended for. It did not look something that anybody had any intention of catching, And the middle guy for Ohio State, they're all just running with their arms at their sides. And then as the ball is going over his head, the the Ohio State guy just like raises his arms in the air and is like, well, that's nowhere close to you. By that standard, in contrast, the Michigan quarterback, Harry Newman, he does actually make a couple throws that look like a person who knows how to throw football. I, it ended up being the deciding factor in the game, I think. Like neither team was really moving the ball consistently on the ground the first team that could actually break something open in the air was going to have a huge advantage and the first completion of this game by the way was to an official it was to a referee catching a deflected pass <laughs> and then signaling incomplete so it took us a little while but it, we were into like pretty deep into the i think it was the second quarter for that there was a there was one particular pass play that michigan broke for a huge gain down into the goal line territory then punch it in after yes, that. Yes. That was basically the game. That was the game. Yeah. It was like a 53 yard completion. It was like 25 yards in the air, 25 yards catch and run. And Ohio state tackled the guy at the one. And then Newman ran a quarterback sneak 
he actually had to get second effort to get into the end zone for the first touchdown of the game. And that was enough because Ohio State wasn't going to score. So Harry Newman, he goes on. He's a two-time uh, first-team All-Big Ten guy in 1930 and 1932. So he's first-team All-Big Ten in this year. He goes on. He's a unanimous All-American in 1932. Michigan was the national championship in 1932. He would have won the Heisman if they had it then. And then he goes on uh, to the NFL. He goes and plays for the New York Giants for a while. They plays for the uh, Brooklyn and Rochester Tigers. So this guy's like a football player. Like you're watching. This is by the standards of the day. This is what a good quarterback looks like. So I thought he was the best player in the game uh, in this situation, in this 1930 game. Let's give a little more background before we get into some other categories, because, again, this whole thing's jacked up. Ohio State in ninth. Well, let's give some context on the game. First of all, this game is the Ohio State Michigan game, Nathan. It is not the last game of the year. We are not yet at that point. I believe it is 1934 when the Ohio State Michigan game moves to the season finale. This is the Ohio State schedule in 1930. First game of the year, September 27th, late start. They beat Mountain Union. In Ohio Stadium, 29 to nothing. The number of games back then that had the loser had zero is unbelievable. If you lost, you got shut out about 65% of the time back then. I believe it. After watching this game, I believe it. (laughs) So then they go the next week, October 4th, home against Indiana. Ohio State wins 23 nothing. October 11th at Northwestern. Northwestern wins 19 to 2. Then it's the Michigan game. It's week four. It's October 18th. It's this 13 to nothing Michigan win in front of 68,549 people, Nathan. All these people came out to watch this. I guess they weren't uh, on their phones. Then there's a there's a a bye week. Then November 1st, home against Wisconsin, a 0-0 tie. We'll try to get the footage on that. We'll do that down the line. We'll just run through every game from the 1930 season if we can. We we they do play Wisconsin coming up, so that would maybe be a good precursor for that. Yeah. Then uh, versus Navy in Baltimore, special game in Baltimore. I feel like I should have written about this when Ohio State played Navy in Baltimore like 15 years ago. Uh, beat Navy 27-0. Beat Pitt November 15th in Ohio State, I'm 16-7. And then they wrap up at Illinois on November 22nd. They win 12-9. So Ohio State finishes that season Five, two, and one overall, two, two, and one in the Big Ten. Both Northwestern and Michigan go five and oh in the Big Ten. Obviously, they don't play each other, so they share that conference title. Michigan that year is eight, oh, and one. So, again, this is like a really good Michigan team, Nathan, in an era when Michigan was dominating the series. And they did, they look like the better team through all of this, do they not? Yeah, no, they do. And Ohio State actually had some renowned guys on this team or some guys who are, you know, still considered, you know, important figures in that era of Ohio State football history, but um, not much going on in this game. And I was actually thinking to myself, like, imagine an Ohio State student driving from Columbus to Evanston, Illinois, prior to the interstate system to watch them lose – 19 to two to Northwestern the week before this, like that's had to be what an experience. It was probably like a nine hour drive each way. And and I will say this is, I am really interested in the hundred year anniversary of Ohio stadium because this game is played in the same place they play now. 
And there are parts of that that just blow my mind. And we know it's been redone. We, but that makes it, and by the way, the game at Northwestern the week before is in Dyke Stadium. That's where Northwestern plays now. Memorial Stadium, Illinois, that's where Illinois plays now. Yep. These stadiums, it is remarkable to me. It's the same sport. It's the same stadium. But it may as well be a 1,000 years ago instead of 92 years ago for what's happening on the field. But there are 60 – this isn't a, This is not in a cornfield – Nathan, this is in 68,000 people in the shoe watching this game. I just get that almost gives me chills about this stuff, right? Because I do think, and I'm going to I'm going to get uh, uh, deep for a second here. So like we are a young nation in terms of obviously we're an old nation in terms of Native Americans were here for thousands and thousands of years before Christopher Columbus was like, hey, I, this is mine now. So we understand that. But in terms of like the structures that we live in, the world that we live in now, it's it's relatively new. So like when you go to like Europe and it's like, hey, this place is a thousand years old. It's a building. Right. It's like we don't really have that here. Right. I think you can go other places in the world. You go to Greece or you go to Egypt. Right. You go to great places where civilizations were founded and there are still parts of that that exist today. Right. In a way that unfortunately does not exist here. So when a couple of years ago, I was in California and I went to Yosemite and I went to like, they have like the, what are the big tall trees called? Redwoods. Redwoods. They have the big tall trees. And to me, it's like, well, this is this for our nation. This is that because this tree, I'm standing next to a tree that's been here for a thousand years, right? Cause we don't have the Parthenon. So we're so young. Sometimes if you really want to feel connected I think the best way in America to feel connected to eons ago is through nature. And that's why I think natural national parks are great places to go. You can feel more connected, I think, through structures in other places of the world where there's more living standing history. So a hundred year old football stadium is pretty good. It's not the Parthenon. It's not the Roman Colosseum. But for us in this country, how many places do you go into on a daily basis, Nathan, into a structure that's 100 years old, where you can say, man, this, there are four generations that have been in this structure. I don't know. I'm not sure that I go into any in my life on any kind of regular basis other than Ohio Stadium. No, I yeah. Know. I mean, do currently, I? yeah. I don't, I don't think I do. I, I, I feel... What you're saying about that connection with American history, like sports venues are one of the best ways that we still do that. Yeah, because like, I mean, think about like, like Fenway Park, like Ted Williams used to play there back. Not only was it okay, so not only did Ted Williams play there, but then like. Ted Williams played there in an era where where he then like took a couple years off to go fight a war and then came back and played baseball there. Like it's and but it's still that same structure. That's still the same place that like Manny Ramirez goes and goofs off in left field for a couple years. Like it's 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 I think that's a really fun part. And it's 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 a great contrast that we have in American sports between the places where it feels like, you know, like the Braves build a new stadium. You're like, didn't they just build a stadium like 15 years ago? Like the, we, we seem to like, there's some cities where they're just constantly pumping out new stadiums, but then you have these like handful 
in a couple of sports. Like I think, you know, Soldier Field, Lambeau Field that way and like the NFL, it seemed like they've been around for I could be wrong about Lambeau Field. I don't know the history, but like Soldier Field has essentially they've revamped it, but it's been there forever. Like those those like places have existed for for so long Hinkle Fieldhouse when I lived in Indianapolis kind of mm. had that vibe in it, just like a place that like is a, a still a snapshot of history even though it's it's you're watching modern things there that are just as relevant to the things that were happening there 70 years ago so I, I agree that it's and I don't really think of Ohio Stadium in that capacity though when I'm there it feels very present to me yeah. and at the same time I, this game also so this, as you said, 68,549 was the attendance for this game. But you look through most of that year, I'm just going by the Wikipedia page, the attendance for a lot of these games at Ohio Stadium was not capacity. Like they played Indiana, the, the Big Ten home opener, and they had 24,000 there by this count. So you're talking like 40% capacity. So it's also a reminder that back then they had to have a stadium that was big enough like just for the Michigan game hmm. in some ways. And then for the rest of the time, it was just sort of, you know, a venue because the the program itself, Ohio State football itself, hadn't maybe yet become hadn't spread itself culturally. It was still, I think, a little bit confined to the school and the student body and wasn't quite the a a draw in a metropolitan area the way it is now. Yeah, this is a fascinating time in Ohio State history and will because it's 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 a window. It's a small window. It's kind of a down window, but it's transitional. And it's, we'll talk about it in a second because we do, I want to talk about the coach and I want to talk about some things around coaching that happened, but I do want to first go to the JT Barrett underappreciated player of the game. And maybe he's not underappreciated Nathan, but I do think this is our opportunity to talk about Wes Fessler. Because Wes Fessler is the most famous Ohio State person in this game. He is one of two All-Americans on this Ohio State team, and he is a future coach of the Ohio State Buckeyes. If we, anybody who would do a thing of the 20 most important people in the history of Ohio State football, Wes Fessler is on that list. And such a rare thing. He was, he was an excellent player. He was a multiple-time All-American as a player. And then he was the head coach. Like, Woody wasn't that. You know, Urban Meyer wasn't that. They, like... You know, Chris Spielman didn't go on and coach Ohio State. Like this is Wes Fessler holds a rare place here. He's number 30 in this game. And I wasn't exactly sure what was happening, but I'll tell you this. There was one part of this game that I thought that is excellent. And that part of the game is as good in this game as it is now. What do you think I'm talking about? An aspect of the actual playing of the game. Punting. The punting is spectacular in this game. And the punter for Ohio State is Wes Fessler. He is dropping 50-yard bombs on the regular because you watch the rest of it and you think to yourself, I don't know, is this punt going to be like 11 yards? It's like punting a medicine ball. It's like, no, the punting looks kind of the same, does it not? It looks very, very similar. Yes. And uh, now the punt returning doesn't quite look the same. I feel like I, I and now maybe it's because of the hang time that those punts were getting. But like, I feel like these guys have more freedom to actually return punts than what you see in the modern game. Oh, I agree with that. Yes. But but also like until that first pass was completed, 
the punts were like the most dynamic thing happening in this game. Like I, I'm not trying to just crap on this game, but it's kind of true. Like it's the first time like the game opens up because so much of the game is played in a phone booth with the way the offenses were back then. And people are struggling to throw the ball. The first time someone like really cranks off a, a punt. Now you're opening up the field. Now people have to like spread out and a guy's like all alone. And now it's a guy making a, Make, the return is now a guy in the open field in space trying to make something happen. It 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 was an energizing moment as I was trying to watch this game. Like I was getting, I felt like Jim Trestle. I was getting psyched up about punts. I will say that that part of it, it the game does open so much on the punt returns. It makes you think, why didn't they realize that in the moment? It's like, man, on the punt return, it's like everybody's spread out. There's room to move. You can kind of get into the open field. And then they go on offense and they s- squash together and everybody's within five inches of each other. And it's like, what? when is someone going to figure out spread out? And I know it's going to happen and Sid Gilman's going to help do it. And there are people who are doing it now. These teams are not doing it. <laughs> these, these teams are not doing it. But you see a little bit of Wes Fessler they don't give him the ball. He is not an offensive juggernaut in this game. There's another guy who gets the ball a ton, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. But there's another West Fessler moment where when Michigan is punting, he comes in unblocked to block a punt, and he jumps in the air to block the punt. And the punter's just like, well, I'm not going to punt it. And the punter yeah. pulls it back in and then runs and does not get the first down. And Ohio State takes over on downs. It's like a really good play by Wes Fessler. Again, by the way, he's unblocked off the edge. And the next Michigan punt, they're lined up. And Wes Fessler's in the same spot on the edge. And before the punt, the Michigan punter, like, points at Wes Fessler. And one of the other Michigan guys on the line, like, moves over in front of Wes Fessler. And then on the snap, they block Wes Fessler. And it was like, oh, well, genius move there. (laughs) But again, it's Wes Fessler is doing the punting. And he's shooting off the edge. Like a cannon, man, he would have blocked it if they would have punted it. He doesn't get the ball a ton, but it's like, oh, Wes Fessler's an All-American. He looks like a good athlete. He pops a little bit in a slow game as a guy with a little something. Yeah, I know we tend to watch these old games and think like, oh, what if that? What if they had Chris Olave out there as a receiver? What if they had Chris Olave out there as a gunner? Like, oh I, think he would yeah. have been, I think he would have just wrecked the concept of special teams. Yeah, it is. It is really a punt fest. It's just it's it's run, 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 punt, run, 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 punt for a half. And then Michigan completes like a 53 yard pass and gets a touchdown. And then, like Dad, you said, that's kind of it. So there's a really interesting aspect of this game that I want to talk about. It's a what if it could be a Buckeye. Actually, it could be a Buckeye fly effect that maybe we'll have to do separately. And eh, probably this is enough. How much do we want to delve into the 1930s on this podcast, Nathan? We'll see how desperate we get as you continue on your little break here. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh, man, did you hear the latest podcast? Doug did some something from 1912. Uh, we'll be back on Buckeye Talk. All right, Doug and Nathan, this is obviously pre-recorded before Nathan went on his break, because we wanted to stockpile a couple things. And we just thought this would be weird. And it is weird. And we thought, hopefully, maybe it would be a little interesting. And one of the issues is that this is a little bit of of an in-between time for Ohio State football. So this is after John Wills, who is sort of the founding father of, I mean, Chick Harley's the player, but John Wills is the coach. He's the coach for 16 years. 
He takes Ohio State into the Big Ten. He sort of makes them what they are. And then he leaves and they have to get a new coach. And so they get this new coach and then this new coach doesn't stick around for real long. But then after this coach, there's Francis Schmidt and then you get the Paul Brown and then you get the Woody Hayes pretty soon. And now you're off and running. So this is this little window in the thirties between Wilson and Schmidt and the head coach here is Sam Williman. And Sam Williman was an assistant who uh, was under Wilson was sort of like Wilson's preferred guy to take over for him in the 1929 season. Uh, Willman played at Ohio State in 1911 and 1913. He was selected, uh, it's funny to be, in 1921, Ohio State did an all-time team, apparently. In 1921, like, how much have you had? And, the, and like the starting halfback is Chick Harley, obviously. And on, among the guys on the second team is Sam Willman. So Sam Willman is like a good player. He's Wilson's assistant. And when Wills retires, um, he wants Sam Williman to take over. But before Williman takes over in 1929, Nathan, Ohio State made a run at another coach. And do you want to guess who it is? Maybe you know who they made a run at to replace John Wills before they settled on the assistant Sam Williman. I mean, I assume it, it's like... Vince Lombardi or Newt Rockney or some other stalwart of American football. It's Bartholomew Eddie Jenkins. Eddie is, it's not, it's, it's Newt Rockney. It's Newt <laughs> Rockney. It's Newt Rockney. They make a run. I, I did not know this, that in 1929, they made a run at Newt Rockney. And I'm going to read briefly from the Columbus dispatch from January 22nd, 1929. So again, this is the 1930 game that we're doing, but so the Willimans in his second year, 1930 Rockney, not offered post says St. John. And again, St. John, oh, that sounds familiar. Yes. St. John arena is named for mm-hmm. former athletic director, Lynn St. John. So here's the story. Here's the subhead had hoped to get coach until he learned of four year contract. Here's the story. Ohio State University was interested in obtaining the services of Newt K. Rockney of Notre Dame and had hopes of doing so until it was learned that the noted gridiron strategist of South Bend was bound to his present position by a four-year contract. This statement was made Wednesday morning by Director of Athletics L.W. St. John. St. John verified the statement made by Rockney Tuesday at South Bend that Ohio State University had made no concrete offer for his services. However, St. John did say that a conference with Rockney was held during the course of the football coaches meeting in New Orleans. It was at this time that Ohio State University learned of the contract which holds Rockney to the Hoosier Institution and will keep him there for four years unless there is an amicable agreement between the interested parties to abrogate the bond. If there was any chance of obtaining the services of Rockney, it is believed by Buckeye officials that premature publicity may have had an ill effect. At New Orleans, Rockney and St. John held several conferences and discussed the coaching situation at Ohio State University, but but that Rockney was offered a position here is denied. St. John, in canvassing the coaching field, interviewed a number of coaches and naturally listened with an attentive ear to the opinions of Rockney. 
So far as St. John could learn from Rockney, there is no foundation to the story that he has been dissatisfied with conditions at South Bend or that he would prefer to make a change. So I also read somewhere else, just in passing, that Newt Rockney used Ohio State to get a new deal at Notre Dame. So what if Newt Rockney had been Ohio State's head coach, Nathan? This is Newt Rockney. This is, this is after the Gipper speech. No, it's not. Yes, it is. I think the Gipper speech was 1928. Newt Rockney dies in 1931 in a plane crash. And the plane crash was he was flying to California for a filming of a Notre Dame movie. So it's not like he was necessarily doing strict Notre Dame business. The, the, the scenarios could have unfolded the same way that perhaps, hey, they're still making a Notre Dame movie, even though he's the head coach at Ohio State now. If we were doing a Buckeye fly effect, I'm not sure that we could say if Newt Rockney had taken the job at Ohio State, he would have lived. But this guy is a living legend. And Ohio State talked to him. Can you imagine? It's kind of a cool little thing. And again, I had no idea. Maybe you guys listening are like, yeah, what? Newt Rockney, almost the Ohio State head coach. Duh. That's not where I was. This was news to me. And it's interesting that, like, back then, was this sort of the precursor for, like, why their teams just buy out contracts now? Like, it's it's interesting to me that, like, somebody's contract that they have with their current team was, like, a blockade to another power trying to hire them away. Like, that – I don't know how often that actually happens anymore. I think usually they just find a way to get whoever they want. Well, and the idea – even in the presentation was like, oh, we didn't know we had a contract. Like, did, was yeah. he just, like, coaching at Notre Dame? Like, is he getting, like – was he punching the clock every day? Was he paid Which, by the hour? What was the deal? Was he the first to ever have a contract? Was it like unheard of that the guys were working with like extended deals? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like it's it's remarkable. Um, so yeah, so November 1928, they're tied 0-0 with Army. That's when he gives the win one for the Gipper speech. So he's coming, he's coming two months off the win one for the Gipper speech. And Ohio State's like, hey, dude, you, you want to Columbus? And he's come to Columbus. He's like, oh, maybe. So 1929, 1930, Notre Dame undefeated national champs. Those were the two years he would have had at Ohio State. He could have been coaching Ohio State in 1930. Instead, he's still at Notre Dame winning a national championship. So I do think that is like an interesting little wrinkle to this. But instead, it's Sam Williman, who I don't know, Nathan, I would say like got out coached. Like you just watch these two teams play and it does feel like a Michigan has a better game plan, right? Ohio state certainly feels more limited in the way they try to attack offensively. Well, but again, as I was looking at the the season, you get kind of a snapshot of how things were going for Ohio state at that point. And like, again, they didn't score the week before in that game against Northwestern. They didn't score two weeks later when they played their next game against Wisconsin. Um, the only points they got against Northwestern were on defense. So this was just a a stage of the season. Now that you go look at the rest of the year, and I guess the competition is different because obviously Northwestern and Michigan were the two best Big Ten teams they played, apparently based on the the record that they had against everybody else. But they, you know, they they took care of the ball the rest of the season. This was just in a this middle juncture of the season where they were pretty incompetent offensively. Feels like you're a Sam Willeman apologist. I mean, I always knew that about you. <laughs> sick of you making excuses for this a, guy. I have a Sam Willeman's face tattooed on my back. So um, I'm reading now from Sam Willeman's Wikipedia entry. 
Despite his success, Williman's teams were accused of underperforming. Despite fielding okay, many, no, that's an apologist. <laughs> yeah. Despite fielding many All-American players, including the legendary Wes Fessler, Ohio State never won a Big Ten conference title under Williman. Worse, he had a losing record two and three against the Buckeyes' arch rival, Michigan. Yielding to pressure, Williman resigned after the 1933 season to take the head coaching position at Western Reserve University. So Williman was the head coach at Iowa State from 1922 to 1925. He leaves Iowa State to come to Ohio State as Wilson's assistant, takes over in 1929, five-year head coach. Starting in 1929, goes 4-3-1. This 1930 season, he's 5-2-1, and one, then 6-3, and 4-1-3, and three, and 7-1. and one. He finishes his Ohio State career with the 26-10-4 record. It's pretty, like, forgettable, Nathan, frankly. I mean, like, again, it's from the 30s, but there are plenty of guys um, from the 30s who are famous. Again, I think Newt Rockney's just rock walking around, and Sam Williman is, despite his success, being accused of underperforming. So it goes from Wills, who was there for 16 years, to Williman. Then you get to Francis Schmidt. Francis Schmidt is there for seven years. Francis Schmidt, good early, not great at the end. And then you go Paul Brown. Then like the three weird years, like post-war with after Paul Brown, that if the war never would have happened, then Paul Brown would have stuck around longer. And then by 1947, you get to West Fessler. So, and then West Fessler leads into Woody Hayes. And then we're in the modern era of Ohio State football. And Paul Brown is practically the modern era of Ohio State football. So we're not as ancient as this feels. We are 12 years removed from Paul Brown and Ohio State winning a national championship, right? That that's, this, this feels like ancient, ancient times. And if we watched a 1942 game, I think we'd have a better handle on like, okay, this is a kind of a lot of progress, at least for Ohio State football in a 12-year period. This is just kind of a fallow ground of like, there's not, there's not a lot happening here for the Buckeyes, but they're about to get better. Well, I think that two and three record against Michigan, was Sam Williman the first guy whose tenure was maybe most defined by a lack of success against Michigan? I know Ohio State had not been winning against Michigan early in that rivalry either, but as the as the game started to become more of a cultural thing, I wonder if that was part of it. Because like his 1933 season, his last season, Ohio State went seven and one. They won five games by shutout. They allowed seven points in one other game and six points in one other game. So an incredibly successful year. They finished the year ranked number five in the country. But their one loss, 13 nothing at Michigan, and he's out the door. And yeah. he had already been like the pressure had already been building. And then you lose that game, which, again, was only three games into the season. And I think that sort of defines your season at that point if you're Ohio State because you don't you can't really recover from that. And uh, that's the end of his tenure. I think that this was in some ways he's an interesting figure in the history of this rivalry because that is a highly successful season, but not successful enough if you don't beat Michigan to make up for the other shortcomings you have. Right. It's time to move on to find the next guy. Yeah, I do sometimes wonder, and again, we're just, we're not pretending to be history experts, but I wonder sometimes how in reverse, what we do to the Ohio state Michigan rivalry, when we take what it is today and apply it yeah. to what it once was. And again, 1930, it's not yet the last game of the year, but you read the modern day coverage and they care, they care. 
but it, it it's it's getting there. It's not all the way there yet of the game, the game. And so like, even to apply it to Willeman of, you know, it's in his Wikipedia bio. I don't know. Maybe you wrote the Wikipedia bio, right? I don't like, did he get fired because or get forced out because of the Michigan record? Right. Or was it just no. generally too mediocre for a school that had had a lot of success under the previous coach? No. And I'm, I'm just speculating about that, that it, I wonder what that influence might've been. But again, like you can tell like that there is some, that game does have some, level of importance because again i'm looking at that 1933 season the attendance for that michigan game it was in michigan that year 93,508 that's more that's a greater attendance than any two other games ohio state played that year put together so something brought people out for that game and again i know it was a bigger stadium and everything but like you could see it even in the 30 in the 1930 season by the attendances like people showed up for that game in a way they didn't show up for other games yeah it i, I we do know it we do know it's important we do know it's important. So I think that's fair. Let's do a slob moment of the game. And I'm, again, we can barely figure out who anybody is. I want to talk about under slob moment. It's not fair, but I want to talk about Lou Hinchman here because Lou Hinchman is number nine and their play is here is the ball. Lou Hinchman. Good luck is 75% of the offense. And again, their lineup is single wing. It's just, they have this little quarterback crouched under center with a, some variety of three or four halfbacks, running backs in the backfield around him. There's a decent amount of mis- misdirection. Everything looks like a mini jet sweep. There's it's a lot just like it's wide zone. It's like, hey, it's wide zone with Lou Hinchman. Hope good luck getting the corner, Lou, or maybe finding a cutback lane. And usually it's not there. And again, this is leather helmets. This is no face masks. We're about 10 years away from progress in that area. So Lou Hinchman, who is in his first of three consecutive All-American seasons. Lou Hinchman is an all-time great. He is a battering ram in this game, Nathan. And he doesn't get a lot of battering. There's not a lot of ground to be gained here but he doesn't stop trying like all, all credit and all respect to uh three-time all American Lou Hinchman for getting after it in this one. I mean, the slob moment of the game is just the whole game. Like it's, just, <laughs> <laughs> it's like someone, when I was buying my first house in Indiana, somebody asked me like, Oh, they were like joking. Like, Oh, did you check and make sure it's not built on a ancient Indian burial ground? I'm like, the whole state is an Indian burial ground. Like, or do you not know the history of this country? And like, this game is just slob moment after slob moment after slob moment. Like that's just what an offense was back then. And it was actually an era of football where I think you did get a little bit more credit. If you were like a great guard, a great end, a great like blocker, I think your value was enhanced a little bit. I think you got more notoriety for, for, being that guy who's out there making the offense happen because it wasn't out in wide open spaces where guys were out making athletic plays. It was like, did we drive a hole that this guy could run through for eight yards? So I, like, I want to make sure (laughs) that we give credit to this because do you want to guess how many three time 
first team All-Americans there have been in Ohio State history. Guys who were first team All-Americans in three separate seasons. Rare ground. Four. Eight. The most recent is James Laurinaitis. And I remember it being a very big deal when James Laurinaitis did it. Mike Doss did it. Excellent safety. Tom Skladani, punter. Tom Skladani did it. Archie Griffin. You figure you win two Heismans. You're probably a three-time first-team All-American. You are. Those are four of them. So that's pretty good, right? A fifth is Chick Harley. He's the first one. He's the Superman of Ohio State football. He does it 1916, 1917, and 1919. And then there are uh, three other guys from this era who are three-time first-team All-Americans. One's a guy named Merle Went, who's a halfback in 34, 35, and 36. And two of the other guys are in this game. So there have been eight three-time first-team All-Americans in Ohio State history. Two are in this miserable game that we just watched for 19 minutes and 28 seconds. Wes Fessler is one of them. 1928, 1929, 1930. And our man, Lou Hinchman is another 1930, 1931, 1932. Nathan, we were gazing upon two of the eight greatest players in Ohio state history. And we didn't even know it. We must've been looking at like nine of the worst too, then because they could not move the ball. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. The lack of, uh, lack of ball movement. Um, We'll take another quick break and come back with a little more on 1930 Ohio State versus Michigan here on, I don't know why we're doing it, Buckeye Retalkables. All right, Doug and Nathan back. I do, Nathan, I do have the game story. So I have a, I have a sign in for the Cleveland Plain Dealer archives, but it didn't work today. But I just want to give this heads up to people. I did this. I, uh, when I was writing the book, I needed this. The Columbus Library System, I don't think, I'm not a resident of Franklin County, but I don't think you have to be to get a library card for the Columbus Library System. And the Columbus Library System has for free online, digitally, like every Columbus newspaper ever printed. So I wanted to go read the game story from this game in the 1930 game. And again, I was going to go read it on the Plain Dealer thing because I use the Plain Dealer archives all, all the time. And for whatever reason, my sign in didn't work. I screwed something up, I'm sure. So I was like, oh, I have this library card from when I was doing the book. I got it in 15 seconds. It's unbelievable how searchable it is. It is tremendously cool. And again, the Ohio State archives have a bunch of really cool stuff that they are putting up. There's a lot of good stuff you can search there. If you want to dig in on Ohio State football history, there are opportunities for you to do that on your computer or on your phone. So I did go and pull that 1930 game story out and I will read not all of the 4,000 words, but a portion of the 4,000 words at some point. But Nathan, is there anything, is there any other category that fit anywhere? I guess we could always do, did this look like a championship team? We'll do those three at the end. Is there anything else though that you would want to talk about? So it's interesting that in this game of just gray on gray on gray, like different shades of gray, whether that's the field or the ball or the players, the referees are in these like gleam. They're like these benevolent angels floating around the field in these gleaming white uniforms. 
And so that was was like striking to me also at first that they're wearing like, I don't even know. It looked like they're out there in like silk pajamas. Just um, they're the the brightest thing on the field by far. And the guy's running around with that stick uh, at one point. What's the guy with the stick? So one of the referees is running around with some kind of a stick that they used for, I, I should have looked it up. I'm not sure why they needed that. Was it some kind of a, a, a marker of some kind? That I'm like sure a that I saw a it guy running like a around with something in his hand. Um, we also, and I don't want to, I don't want to take this off the rails. It's not the only gleaming white thing about this game. All of the players oh, in this yeah, game yeah. are white. This yes, is 12 sir. years before Bill Willis. So I don't know, maybe that would have been a more exciting brand of football if like half the athletes in the country had been invited to participate. I mean, because they were playing college football. They just weren't playing it in this game. And I think that's uh, I don't want to we I don't think we can just roll right over that. Um, Also, we were talking about the punting before. I'm not sure that roughing the kicker had been invented yet. There were yes. There were some collisions back there where and now this was cut up in such a way that maybe there were penalties. I don't know. But. They were some guys back there just got plowed into and they didn't seem to care much. No, it was like, have the balls away, do what you want. But one guy gave like a cross body block to the punter. It was stomach to stomach. They made like a letter X with each other and the ball was gone. It's like, oh, I don't know. What, what do you want us to do, man? It's football. But, but so much of the progress that you would see later in football seemed to be watching this game and just like cutting out the middleman. Cause like, as you said, they brought in somebody else to throw passes later in this game, but it was like a halfback. So they were like, the quarterback was still like pit, handing the ball off sometime. Now, eventually they did, I think just go to shotgun snaps to that guy, but there was like, just <laughs> the, the concept of like offensive efficiency, especially as it related to the passing game was decades away. It's the almost seemed centuries away watching this at times. I do think, uh, the, I'll add the Malik Hooker, where did he come from award. I think somebody kicked kicked something without a helmet on. It looked like the kicker at one point, maybe it was the Michigan kicker on an extra point, did not have a helmet on. And I was like, where did, what is happening? Why is that allowed? I know we're not, you know, it's still a leather helmet, but it was like a hardened leather. They had advanced the leather helmets to some degree. It's like, put a helmet on, dude. So I thought that was inappropriate for that guy to, to be out there like that. I was, I felt nervous for him. Maybe kickers were exempt. They were like, well, this guy's never going to get tackled. That's true. So. Noah Ruggles, who knows what happens, what's happened to Noah Ruggles, like since uh, we recorded this, but like Noah Ruggles, like just wasn't around for spring football. So it was like, yeah, the putter, the kicker didn't wear a helmet. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. He's just a kicker. Yeah, he'll be okay. Um, okay, so I guess. Oh, there's one other thing I wanted to note here. As again, I'm like, I made notes. I feel like I, I wrote down notes about this game. I with timestamps about like, oh, well, at 12:47. Oh, I did say this was. This goes back to the coaching a little bit. The second Michigan touchdown, they snapped it to the up man. They had three like mm-hmm. running backs lined up in a line and the, the quarterback in a shotgun and they snapped it to the up guy and he ran it right through the middle for like a 15 yard touchdown run. And again, you did not see that kind of ingenuity from Ohio state for one second in the oh, no. added to the Sam Williman got out coached uh, big time in this game. I thought that was a nice play. That was like a double reverse flea flicker as this game went. That was, yeah. <laughs> that was like really, I'm trying to think of what the, what is like the uh, equivalent now to like something that forward thinking, but it, it seemed like a, a complete piece of uh, 
chicanery or whatever to, to that the other team would never be expecting that you would just snap to the up guy. I will say um, the the coach here for Michigan is Harry Kipke, who is holds a greater place in Michigan history than Sam Williman does in Ohio State history. He uh, he did win. He won four conference titles and two national championships. So Michigan, this is 1930. In 1932 and 1933, Michigan was back-to-back national titles. He then falls off a cliff. All, not literally. You have to be careful when talking about people in the 30s. Because <laughs> back then, I think people just fell off cliffs and stuff. It was like, well, I don't know. There wasn't a road. There was no map. He was out for a walk, and he fell off a cliff. He didn't literally fall off a cliff. The teams just got bad, and he got fired. So Harry Kipke was at Michigan for nine years. His first year was 1929. So he went 5 3 and 1, 8 0 oh, and 1, 8 1 and 1, 8 and 0, oh, 7 0 oh, and 1. Really good. Listen to his last four years. What happened? 1 and 7, 4 and 4, 1 and 7, 4 and 4. What a start and what a finish. So he gets fired after the 1937 season. And then he gets replaced by Fritz Kreisler. So then, and now, now Michigan's off and running again. So they won two national championships with this guy, but then Fritz Chrysler hired away from Princeton comes in and takes him to another level. And now here we are. Now we're getting in like the modern day of, of football for both sides of the equation here. But the other thing I wanted to note, this game is played in 1930. Woody Hayes is 17. 17 year old Woody Hayes is playing high school football in Ohio and he's playing like this, Nathan. And he's going to go on and play college football at Denison. And guess what? If you wonder why Woody Hayes in the 70s, if you ever wondered, eh, why did that guy want to throw? This is what he grew up playing, Nathan. This is Woody Hayes' football. So we all know it. Three yards in a cloud of dust. We all know it. But for me, again, I'll just tell you how I feel. Woody Hayes, of course, yes, we get it. But when I think, oh, this is his football. He's a teenager watching this, where all 22 guys on the field are within six feet of each other. Yes, he had a hard time letting Corny Green or Arch Leister or whoever sling it around. It wasn't in his DNA because this is the game he grew up on. Well, and it, it worked. I mean, this is what you saw people use, not in this game, but what you saw people use to like dominate football. Like if you executed this perfectly, this is how you won games. And it was that way for a long time. So I, I guess I understand it's one of those, like, are you going to like completely throw out the playbook or are you just going to work on perfecting what you know will work it's that's not really how we think of these things as like radical change but they're not usually it's like a series of small changes that happen over time and then maybe somebody has it the first person to like have it at a certain level have success with it at a certain level that looks like a big innovation but a lot of times it's like incremental progress and it does that makes it real for me because okay Woody Hayes has been gone for a while, but Woody Hayes is real to this era of Ohio State football fan. Maybe you weren't even alive when he coached Ohio State, right? But he doesn't feel so ancient. He coached Archie. 
his games were on TV. He's playing on the Rose Bowl on color TV, right? It's not ancient times. And that's Woody. And this is Woody's football. So that's a connector. That, that Again, that makes it feel more real to me to understand that this was Woody Hayes and Ohio Stadium connect us to this game. Your eyes are literally closed. Your eyes are literally closed. I don't know if you're... I don't know if you're just imagining thinking about 17 year old Woody Hayes watching the Ohio state Michigan game, or if you're like, dear God, please let this podcast about the 1930s be done. I was just imagining it's, it's, it's hard to watch like these games. When you first turn on a game like this for a few minutes, you're like, Oh wait, the world actually wasn't black and white. Right. Right. Everything here was happening in color. And you're trying to imagine like, well, what were those colors? Like it, it, you, you have to kind of try to, try to imagine yourself into a more, a more vibrant version of this game. Yeah. All right. I'll do one more category that I actually did have a guy for and, and I joked we won't have one for this, but it is the John Cooper. If he'll bite, he'll bite as a pup winner. And I'm going to give that to Stu Holcomb, who is number seven in this game. And after they ran Lou Hinchman 60 times and were just like, well, See what you can do, Lou. At some point, I don't know if Lou's bruised body was like, can I get, can I get a bruise? So they start, they gave it, the, they put Stu Holcomb in and they start giving the ball to Stu Holcomb a little bit. Stu in 1931 goes on to start for Ohio State. He's a captain for Ohio State in 1931. And then he goes on to be the head football coach at Finley at Miami of Ohio down the line in 1942 and 1943, a couple other schools. He's an assistant at army in 1945 and 46. That's like the heyday of army football when army is the best program in the country. And then he becomes the head football coach at Purdue university. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the name Stu Holcomb. Mm -hmm. So, and then he goes on, he's like an AD in the big 10. He's the athletic director at Northwestern. For a decade, he hires Air Parsegian at Northwestern, which is kind of a big deal. Um, he was then, he was the general manager of the White Sox for a while, I think. So, yeah, he was the general manager of the Chicago White Sox. So this is one of those guys, like, back in the day, it's like, hey, he was the football coach and the basketball coach, and he was a professor, and he was the general manager of a baseball team. He lived one of those sporting lives. And he's the backup halfback in this game, getting the ball. So that's Stu Holcomb. So, you know, I just wanted to give a shout out to Stu. If you know Stu, Stu, of course, is gone. If you know Stu's family, maybe I will be curious, Nathan, if we get a text or something from anybody who's like, hey, my great, great grandfather, blah, 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 you know, or, or my, my great, great aunt said she went to that. Get, you know, I'd be, I would yeah. love if there's anybody who has a more tangible connection to this 1930 Ohio State Michigan game other than, hey, it's in the old stadium that they still play in. Uh, we would be happy to hear that. All right. I did pull up some stories from the game the day after in the Columbus dispatch. I will say there's a headline, uh, inside the section that says sweetest girl in quotes makes debut at game. And that story is the sweetest girl in Columbus. Miss Helen Robinson was introduced to the public for the first time Saturday afternoon when she was driven into the Ohio stadium before a crowd which nearly packed that gigantic horseshoe and escorted to a box on the Michigan side of the field. 
Miss Robinson, who won her title in a contest sponsored by the Dispatch and the Columbus Candy Association, was gr- driven to the game in a large scarlet and gray Cadillac Phantom. She was attired in a chic Russiana ensemble consisting of a coat, muff, and beret of black Persian curl and wore black suede and reptile pumps and black kid gloves. She carried a giant corsage and chrysanthemums tied with scarlet and gray ribbons. 1930, man. What a time. What a time to be alive. I'm not making fun of anybody who was alive in 1930. Man, stuff was crazy, though. So I wanted to note... Congratulations to the Dispatch and the Candy Association for driving Miss Helen Robinson to the game in a Scarlet and Red Cadillac. I would love to like take just like the average spectator from that game, especially if you weren't a student, if you were like an, an older person at that game, and like drop them onto a a current Ohio State game day. Yeah, and their head would just explode within three minutes. Listen, man, it's all about pageantry. College football is all about pageantry, whether it's Miss Helen Robinson or to biddle right now all right let's go to the game story this is this blows your mind i don't even know giant headline on page one of the columbus sunday dispatch ohio state spirit lags as michigan hurls passes to reap 13 to 0 victory wolverines this is subhead wolverines rest after revenge for two defeats is assured buckeyes need pepping up for success in future games This is by W.F. McKinnon. This is wild. I'll go for as long as I can until Nathan falls asleep. W.T.F. McKinnon. Yeah, for real. I not just one of those. I know people do this all the time. There's another one. The other, the main story in the dispatch that day is under the headline. Eight years in bed still smiles. Books and bands bring joy to boy long in hospital. Spending eight years of your life in a hospital isn't exactly a pleasant pastime, but smiles help a whole lot. Joseph Risto, age 12, has discovered. Unbelievable. Was that the, the, did that kid grow up to be Grandpa Joe from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? And he was just in bed his whole life? Unbelievable. I, it, this kid, he's the smilingest kid you ever wanted to see. He's reading a book in his hospital bed. Shout out to that kid. All right. Here we go. Ohio may not give a damn for the whole state of Michigan, but certainly it must have an itch of a regard for the 1930 football team, which the maize and blues sent into battle against the brilliantly clad warriors of Ohio state Saturday afternoon. What Ohio thinks of Michigan, according to college legend and song probably makes little difference to that state for the sons and daughters of the school that sprawls so intriguingly over the greater part of Ann Arbor are happy. They came by thousands to Columbus and departed with the satisfaction of seeing Harry Kipke, Michigan's youthful square-jawed coach, level matters with his bitter older rival, Sam Williman. A year ago, Ohio won seven to nothing. Saturday, Michigan scampered off Tony Aquila's highly prized sod, owner of a 13 to zero decision. Are we to interpret, Nathan? That he is name-checking the guy who put the grass in the stadium? That's what it sounds like. I also like that he got in the lead, like first, first sentence, first graph, brilliantly clad. Like it, it matters when anybody was wearing. I will tell you, this is there. Like this, this kind of sports writing from the thirties makes me laugh. I worked with somebody though, who would come to an Ohio state game and 
two hours before the game started, would write his first five paragraphs about what the leaves look like next to the river. And I was like, go home. If you're writing your first five paragraphs about what the freaking leaves look like, go home. You don't need to be here. Unless you're on the tightest deadline of all time, don't pre-write the first five paragraphs of your game story. Well, even then, first of all, if you're pre-writing, you write like the, you pre-write the last five graphs or like the middle five graphs, but you don't, yeah. Drove me crazy. Drives me crazy. I'll continue. Two touchdowns were scored by Michigan. Others might have been scattered across the official tally boards at either end of the field had the gentlemen from the North felt the need of doing more for their alma mater. They may have felt like adding a few points to their rather comfortable margin, but from a perch high up in the press box, it seemed that after the maize and blue in the third period had shored, had shoved over its second touchdown and failed to kick the goal, it felt pretty well satisfied with itself and settled back to see what the young of Ohio could do. These young gentlemen bearing the scarlet and gray colors of the great Commonwealth of Ohio were able to do just nothing. How devastating is that? These young gentlemen, and then you talk about them wearing the colors of the Commonwealth, and you finish with, were able to do just nothing? Ruthless, WK. (laughs) Ruthless. Burn. That's a hard burn. They did. They did slather and slide around a bit and in the closing moments make some grand gestures. But for the most part, they were gestures and nothing more. Then he goes into this whole thing about how it was like a boxing fight, but Ohio State was only shadow boxing. Then he talks about how miserable the Northwestern game was, and this was even worse. Um, Ohio was a toy in attempting to stave off the overhead game of the men of Kipke. So he liked the Michigan passing game. I think there would be a fun like SNL sketch about like, is this how people talked back then too? Like if you went up and asked somebody like, hey, how'd the game go last night? Would they go into this crap? Because then you would just like two cents in, you just punch them. Yeah. I mean, I, right. For real. Did people, did people read this and be like, hey, guys, I know that game kind of sucked. Wasn't real fun. But man, did, did you see what WF wrote in the dispatch on Sunday? That was poetry, man. Did you see that eighth paragraph? Beautiful. The way he set it up and then said, and we're, we're able to do nothing. Riveting stuff. Although who I mean, it's like I'm making it's like we're making fun of sports writers and then we're like make sure you read cleveland.com slash osu for our riveting crap. Oh my god. Um, so anyway, like that's the general gist. Like at word like 2900, he starts talking about the game. And the the general idea is that Michigan could throw it and Ohio State couldn't. And he did think as much as we thought Ohio State didn't do anything, he thought Ohio State basically had a couple chances and couldn't do anything in the red zone. They didn't particularly be moving. They didn't seem to move the football much to me after the whole Fessler thing where he would have blocked the punt and they got the ball back on the turnover on downs. They went like three and out and punted back right away. They did nothing offensively. I want to read this though. There were occasions when Ohio's offense function again, by the way, when all the stuff like when Brady Hoke and everybody was calling Ohio state, Ohio back in the day, they called Ohio state, Ohio. So, and by the way, they don't capitalize the S in stadium for Ohio stadium, which is, it makes it think like, is it, was it not Ohio stadium? It was more like it was Ohio's like, it's just, did you not capitalize stadium back then? 
I have a whole thing about why you should sell naming rights and like, but this was going to make my case of like, man, back in the day, it wasn't even proper S stadium. So how can we be so attached to the name, get money for it? Anyway, here we go. There were occasions when Ohio's offense functioned beautifully with charging blockers, making paths for the leather luggers. Again, there were moments when the interferers were all too slow and clogged the right of way for the man behind them. Ohio, as said before, frequently threatened to become an actual menace to Michigan, but history shows that the Germans once stood within a few rods of the gates of Paris and lost. And further, Hannibal once was within the very shadows of the portals of Rome, but turned back, a defeated general. If there is satisfaction in that, you may have it. We don't want it. Four games remain on Ohio's schedule. I don't know. That's I. That's the sports writer I knew who would have. Uh, is that died. so? That's it's. I know that we like sports writing in some ways has evolved now to where we need to write analytically as we're writing, you know, a game report. So it's not just here's what happened. It's like here's what we think it means. Here's what. Right. But but like that is just like pompous. I I don't know what to. <laughs> It's, it's opinion yeah, yeah it's just it's it is it's it's just going on and on and on words. and on with yeah it doesn't tell you anything about the game and again i've known modern sports writers who write that way but yeah it, it does not feel like i actually don't think people in 1930 were like oh yeah give me more of this let's get to the stats because like again word 3071 you get to this Ohio scored 13 first downs to six for Michigan and gained 272 yards to 224 for the Wolverines, but it didn't mean a thing. Ohio tried 24 passes and completed only four for 93 yards, four of 24 passing for 93 yards. Michigan tried five, made good three and gained 85 yards, 53 at one stroke. Um, So that's the deal. Hinchman gained 70 yards on the ground, by the way, for Ohio See, State, that battering. Four area. of 24. Four of 24, because that was at the end. They were just chucking it all over the place. So um, that's the deal. That's the game. That's what football was like back then. I, I wouldn't say it's fun, but it's interesting. Go take 20 minutes to maybe go watch the thing. But we probably won't be. We think we'll do more games from the 30s. Nathan, I think we're good. Oh, I think you guys can do as many of them as you want yeah. between right. like May and the start of July. I do want to shout out again. This is the, the quarterback they put in at the end to chuck it. This is a paragraph later. Dave Chiswick, a sophomore from Cleveland, went in at quarterback and took his turn. Half a dozen throws failed, but Fessler finally got one. And Ed Weaver of substitute left end got another, making it first down in Michigan's 27-yard line. So anyway, Dave Chiswick from Cleveland came in and tried to throw it, but he couldn't throw it like Harry Newman. Everybody knows that. And Michigan won. That's a little bit of history here on the Buckeye Retalkables. Uh, you know, we got to do five podcasts a week, 52 weeks a year. Stuff happens. Maybe you liked it. Maybe you didn't. Thanks for listening. Regardless, if you've made it this far, who knows how many of you did. For now, for Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>